Welcome to Making Movies is Hard, a podcast about the everyday struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Timothy Plain. And I'm Mark Brussel. And today we are joined by Chris Ford, who is an advertising writer and creative director. He's now working freelance, but I met him when he was a creative director at my agency. Or were you like ACD at the time that you're a could be? No, I, I skipped the ACD. I just I, <laughs> jumped right up. I think I think I was like the last guy willing to work on Saturn, and so <laughs> they for rewarded us, <laughs> rewarded me with the full creative director title. For us, for less lamos, what's an ACD? I don't know what that means. That's a creative director. It's like an assistant to the assistant manager. I think. <laughs> okay, it's uh, associate creative director. So it's like oh, okay. I'm not in the creative department, so I don't know exactly what that means. But my experience is it's almost like a creative director in training. So they still have to report to a creative director. So it's like kind of this additional layer of approvals you go through where they're kind of running things, but not fully running things because a creative director still can swoop in and, and change everything. Which would never happen. In advertising. <laughs> it never happens. Yeah, that's about right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nice. So welcome awesome. to the podcast, Chris. Excited to have you on. Thank you. Happy to be here. You were probably the first filmmaker that I knew that went out and shot your own feature. Like up up until that point, because I'd known a lot of people that were out making shorts, including me, but I don't I didn't know anyone that had gone and raised money and made a feature. And I, it was a huge deal at that time too, because this is like pre-Kickstarter days. There was like no way to raise money the way that you were doing it except for and i like the way you did this you just hung an envelope on your office door and said donations <laughs> accepted people could come by and drop some cash or a check in there and that would go towards the funding of your movie yeah well that i think that was i think that envelope went up shortly after we ran out of money which happened many times in the middle of making it but yeah there was no Kickstarter. We made um, these kind of intricate little packets. They had uh, a little press kit, and they had little photos, and they had a little synopsis and all these different things. And we had everybody over to the Truckee River Bar and Grill in Reno, Nevada, which was around the corner from the barbershop where the film was set, and pitched everybody the idea, showed them a little poorly made trailer, and tried to get everybody to give us $2,500. Uh, that's like Cohen brother style. Yeah, it was, it was old. It was old school. It was definitely old school. It was like definitely not Kickstarter. And then, how many years later did Kickstarter come out? And when you saw it, were you like, "Oh my god, I wish that would have existed when I did this"? Oh god, I don't. I, I mean, because I, you did a Kickstarter campaign, not for a film, but I remember you did one for some uh, so, sort of Jeep thing. Some yeah, some secondary side hustle for. Uh, we were going to make badges for Jeeps because the, the every Jeep came with a trail-rated badge, and we thought those badges are lame. What a Jeep needs is a really rugged, manly badge, and so <laughs> I don't know why. I don't know how we landed on this as, a, as something we were going to do to help us break out of advertising, and uh, we, we did attempt a Kickstarter, which I think we learned our lesson on Kickstarter, which was... Uh, Make make your threshold low, and then you get <laughs> right. to keep all the money. Yeah. Instead, we made the threshold high and got to keep none of the money. And <laughs> yeah, how, how what percentage of your goal did you get to on the Jeep Kickstarter? Oh, uh, what's not much? I think I, I don't 20%? know. Twenty percent? Yeah, somewhere like a third, maybe a third. Okay. Yeah. Well, that doesn't hurt as much because if you only get a third and you don't get to keep it, it's like 
you know, it's not like you got 60% or 70% and then you know, right. yeah. didn't keep it or whatever. Yeah, we we weren't savvy Kickstarters. I, I'm curious, that envelope that you hung in your office, how much money came through that envelope? Do you remember? Well, part of the envelope was to let people know that making movies is expensive. And so I don't remember how much money came through there. I'd say a little bit of money came through there. And I was at a point where any bit of money helped. So uh, I'm trying to remember. It's been a while. But I would say maybe a few thousand dollars came through that envelope, you know? And I think I was nice. in the post at that time. And um, uh, luckily, luckily, working in advertising, I had so many people help me with post free of charge. And I think that's sort of what ultimately saved the film because the film was a, you know, a $200,000 film that went a good 50 to $75,000 over budget just to get it made. And then when it came to post, there was literally no money left. And so, wow. Did you not budget for post? You didn't think about that? Yeah. I don't think I budgeted for post or I budgeted for post. And then some of the, Shady characters helping me produce the film um, didn't help me budget for post. Oh, shady characters! I want yeah. to hear about this. Oh man! But before we hear, so do we? We didn't really get your full bio yet. No, right? I, I I introduced him, but I we want to hear it yeah. from your mouth. What? Like, yeah. give us your one minute bio. Who are you? What do you do? Especially right. your background in film too. So I, I guess the way I would say it is I grew up, I was born in California and I grew up in Reno, Nevada, and I was within days of enrolling in the Berkeley School of Engineering after I graduated from high school and kind of had a meltdown and was like, I'm not, I don't want to take math. I don't want to be an engineer. And so my mom was like, well, come home and go to school here and figure it out. And so I became an art major and my dad flipped out and... He didn't flip out. He just—I think he expected me to be an engineer. And and uh, and when I enrolled as an art major, he was like, "What?" But anyway, it took me a long time to figure out what I wanted to do in college. And ultimately, I walked away with a, a degree in journalism. About the same time I did that, I finally figured out there was a thing called film school. And after six years in college, I think no one wanted to entertain the idea of their son uh, going to film school. And so. I, I got a job in advertising and, and thought someday, somehow I could use what I learned making short films and advertising to make a long, uh, a feature somehow. And so it's sort of, it was a long circuitous, circuitous route to actually get to the filmmaking, uh, part of the operation. Uh, I think there was a desire that was always there. I just felt like Reno was a place and my high school was a place like no one, no one told you there was a thing called film school. You sort of had to figure it out for yourself. And uh, I think if I had it to do over again, I would have just figured out how to go to film school. So what did you major in in college that led you to advertising? I majored in art, English, graphic design, and ultimately journalism. And in the journalism school, there was an advertising program that was really a copywriting program because there was no art direction component to the within the journalism school. Oh, okay. So you thought you'd work a few years in advertising, you know, get your chops, make some money, and then, you know, prove to your to your family that you could do the filmmaking stuff and then apply to, like, a master's degree or something? No, I wasn't that savvy. I just figured okay. uh, <laughs> I, I would get a job in advertising and somehow I would figure out how uh, to make a film. Uh, okay. I, I knew I wanted to do something creative. I just 
advertising seemed like the most um, monetarily viable route to a creative job. I guess if that makes any sense. There's money in it. Yeah, there is. <laughs> well, that's There's money, we all... and they're willing to pay you to do the job. Yes. Right. Unlike filmmaking, where it's like, well, why don't you work free for like ten years, and then we'll see. Yes. Right. Exactly. It's less like that. <laughs> or for you know pennies or whatever you know. Give yeah. us your movie. We'll go see if we can sell it. If we make any money, we'll give it to you. If not, eh, sorry. If we make any money, <laughs> we'll say we'll give it to you, and then we'll give you significantly less than right. that. Exactly. Probably. So when you're uh, doing this career in, in advertising, when you just get started, like how long did it take before you made your first like creative short film on the side? I'd, you know, I the first film I ever made... Uh, well, I made a film in eighth grade at a movie workshop in, uh, at a summer camp. And then the next film I made was my, my feature. I think Holy I made a trailer moly. for the feature. Wow. Uh, so yeah. you just dove right in head first. You're like, I'm doing this thing. Wow. Kind of. That's awesome. I, I, I took, uh, I was working in New York in the late nineties and I took a screenwriting class called writer's Boot Camp which was a pretty effective six-week, eight-week thing that got you from uh, an idea for a film to a first draft. And I really liked the idea of screenwriting and wanted, because I have a kind of an ordered personality, wanted to do the proper thing, which would be to have someone teach me how to do it. And so uh, I spent, whatever, eight weeks uh, writing the first version of The Village Barbershop and then endless amounts of revisions until I finally ended up making it. But yeah, that was the script I had. And that was the thing I didn't know I wanted to make until I met the right person who kind of unlocked the possibility for me. And yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't like, "Ah, I'm not going to make a short. I just was going to figure out how to, how to, how to, how to make the feature. Wow. At that time, had you been on a bunch of commercial sets yeah, I mean, yeah. And did you think like being on those sets, you knew what how to make a film because you knew you knew roughly how shots were captured and then how they fit together in the edit room because you were throughout on that process and you got to see how directors worked and how crews worked. So did you feel like that prepared you for just jumping right into shooting a feature? Yes, I sort of felt like if there's, I feel like the one thing I would be would be confident in would be knowing a good take. A good performance. Uh, most right. of the stuff. Most of the stuff I did in advertising. It was either like it was like jokes or comedy, or and I'd gotten used to seeing writing words on a page and seeing an actor perform them, and knowing when something worked and when something didn't work, and something needed to be rewritten or something needed to be changed or or whatever. And so I felt like performance wise, I would I would get it. I would just need to get a DP who you know, understood how I saw things looking and then could kind of put the camera in, in places that would achieve that. You know, I, I'm not like, um, from a directing point of view, I wasn't, I didn't have a, uh, a super stylized eye or as, you know, uh, some type of Wes Anderson vision for how everything should look. Right. I just knew like, I, I wanted a good performance. Looks yeah. Like. Yeah. But I feel like that, and this is not to, to shit on that at all, but I do feel like most creatives feel like they can direct because of that. They feel like I know what a good take looks like. I know how to make the decisions, but 
I think when it comes down to actually getting the good take, that's where you need some skills to kind of pull that out of actors or to set up the environment to get that good take. Is that what you end up discovering or was it as easy as you thought it was going to be? No, it wasn't easy. Uh, I did discover uh, how to do it. Like for, for my film, there was a guy, John Ratzenberger, who played the lead. And the first day of filming, I think his initial take on the performance was too broad for me. And uh, I didn't want to go, fuck John, that's too broad. (laughs) (laughs) So I, I I had to kind of, I had to go and sit on a rock and go, um, how am I going to, how am I going to, how am I going to approach this? This guy was on cheers for 20 years, you know, uh, how am I going to tell him (laughs) that I'm not happy with the performance right now? That's funny. Yeah. It's a tricky thing. Yeah, man. So what did you do? I told him, um, I, the, my direct, the thing I learned was I, I was the writer and so I could come at it from the point of view of the intent of the writer and my vision of the character. And so I talked about, I talked about performance through character. And so I would say something like, you got to remember this guy's lost his wife. Uh, she was the most important thing in his life for 30 years. And now he's about to lose the only other thing he cares about, which is his barber shop. And so this informs how he walks, how he acts, how he moves, how he uh, interacts with the world. And so I think the little talk I had gave John a better understanding of the character. And then ultimately he was, a, he's a, he's a great actor. I mean, he does a lot of broad comedy, but like he, he's a, a really, I mean, he made other actors on the set better and he took that direction and, you know, it slowed him down. It changed the way he kind of moved. You could see the weight of the character, kind of take hold and um i think that was kind of the the way i got it to to work and i tried to give direction yeah. that way um, because then it's not personal and it's not about you're doing it wrong it's sort of like here's who this person is in my head it's also i yeah. think setting up an expectation for him about like what you're looking for you know, yeah. you're look you're looking based on what you just told me I can tell you're looking much more for an emotional performance than you are about playing up the comedy right and you're also trusting him too by giving him that kind of um backstory and that sort of emotional sort of uh perspective on the character you're trusting him to deliver that and I think that is empowering to an actor you know rather than saying you're too broad which is um, <laughs> the exact opposite of empowering, you know? Um, yeah, exactly. And I think, like, that's the kind of movie I would want to make is a movie where, and I think some people forget is, like, you can have a vision in your head, but you, I like the idea of sharing that vision with somebody and seeing what they'll do with it, which is very unadvertising because most creative directors will tell a writer or something, just do this or just make it this. Right. But but to me, it's more like, no, you hired this guy because of some quality. So let him bring that quality to the performance. Don't, don't micromanage his performance. Give him the tools he needs to do the performance as he sees the performance as an artist, which to me is what filmmaking should be. And that's when the kind of the, the magic, right. the magic happens. Right. That's a, that's a great lesson. I think all directors should should hear these words and heed them. I mean, I'm sure a lot most directors are doing things similar to this, anyways. But if you're young, you're you're just starting out. 
I mean, wow, what a great piece of advice. Yeah, and it is, I think what you said that that's not the advertising way is so true because if you spend a career in advertising and you learn directing from advertising, like let's say you direct a bunch of commercials, I think there is a danger that when you go over to the narrative side of things, you do still want to try to maintain control of it. And it's not, I think long form narrative is not something that you can maintain control over like a 30 second commercial where you're, no. you're just like, ah, go bigger, go smaller. And you can get like 20 different takes and then you can piece it to, together in the edit room. Yeah. And, you know, making independent movies, you don't, you don't get 20 takes. You get like, <laughs> <laughs> right. get like three or four, you know? Exactly. Yeah. If you're uh, lucky. If you're lucky. Right. Right. And so. Yeah, you get the time with the actors to develop the character over you know a month of shooting, which is good. But you you definitely don't get you don't get. I don't know. I bet on sets and I'm like with creative directors when I was young and they were like, take twenty five, and I'm like, <laughs> we really haven't fucking gotten it yet. <laughs> That's funny. Timothy Timothy has a story like that where he did. How many takes did you do? Like I did. I was I was aiming for fifty because I wanted to do like the the David Fincher thing. I wanted to find out like why is David Fincher do like fifty takes? I got to twenty nine or maybe thirty something. Yeah, I think I got to thirty two, yeah, and then I funny. used take twenty nine, and it did. It <laughs> was like a really useful thing to like dialing in every nuance of the performance and it becomes almost more like play acting you know where the actors are just kind of going through the same motions over and over again and it does pull out a little bit of the spontaneity of course but if you want to like dial in every single movement or like really hit the timing on something it did help and that's i think why fincher does it a lot is because he is like such a perfectionist and there was like times in social network where he's trying to get the scene down to a certain length because that script was so long but he had to make it fit in two hours right i did i I saw an interesting thing online about fincher and how he sets up his shots so that he can uh micromanage the performance on both sides so there's always room to, to slice it so he can if he wants the actor on the right to say something four frames sooner than she does he can Mm. he can manipulate it in post that way which is like yeah that's 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 really dialing it in (laughs) yeah it is but so you're talking about this this uh writer's class that you took um was that where the village barbershop came out of was it from that writer's class yes and i think i think the the i don't call it the irony but i showed up to the class i had a I had a friend, uh, she was a creative assistant at J. Walter Thompson, and she had taken this class, and I don't know how I ended up talking to her, uh, Susan Michaels, and I think she's writing in LA now somewhere, but, um, and she's like, oh, I took this class, it's really great, uh, it, you know, it's really fast, it gets you a working draft, and so she had recommended Writer's Bootcamp, and so I showed up, and the and I was maybe not as bright as I thought I was, but uh, the guy's like, so what's your movie about? And I'm like, oh, don't we figure it out in the class? And they're like, the guy's like, no, this is, this class is six weeks, kid. Like you're going to have a draft in six weeks. So <laughs> you better uh, know now. <laughs> what's your, what's your movie? And I'm like, uh, I've always wanted to make a movie about this barber. He's like, okay, what else? And I'm like, oh yeah, I don't know. <laughs> and so, I had to get my shit together and um, uh, figure it out pretty quickly. But uh, it was 
it was fast and furious, but super useful. And there's a lot of great tools I still use in all my scripts that I don't do anything with, or the few scripts I keep writing and rewriting over and over again. Uh, but there's great there's great tools in that class. So did it help for you to define what your movie was before you started writing it? Or on Village Barbershop, did you just like jump right into it and just figure it out along the way? More like that. But I wouldn't approach an, an, another script like that. Like what I, I learned, I think, is to almost start at the end and work your way backwards because the ending's so important. But um, I think, you know, the story on the barbershop was I went to the... I went to this barber, Art the Barber, for probably 20 years of my life. And the guy, his mind was like a steel trap. Like he remembered all my friends from high school and all my friends from university. And he like knew who was getting married and what was going on. And this was all from spending, you know, 20 minutes with him once a month for 20 years. And I was like, I realized I didn't know anything about this guy. And I've always been fascinated by barbershops for whatever reason like a lot of people. And I just thought, here's an interesting character. Uh, what would happen if a woman was kind of thrown into this situation? And and what would happen if that woman was there because he's the only person he could get to work in the shop and the only way to keep the shop open? And could it be kind of an interesting fish out of water story? And sort of just kind of, I stair-stepped into the story that way but it all just started with the fact that there was this guy in my life who knew everything about me and I knew nothing literally nothing about him and it just sort of felt like it was a little bit of um and like a little bit of detective work but from a story writing standpoint mm. so the female character in the movies kind of you learning who this guy is a little bit yeah and him learning things about himself that maybe he didn't know and learning to be kind of learning to grow like kind of a, I don't know if I haven't gotten, should probably do some therapy on it, but like, you know, he's kind of like <laughs> a fairly rigid guy who sort of saw the world a certain way. And by taking a chance on a young woman kind of learns to be probably a more warm hearted, well-rounded human being. Was it hard for you to get to the ending on this story since you kind of just started with this premise? Yeah. I mean, it, you know, it was kind of, it was like an, an indie narrative film. So it didn't have uh it didn't have that kind of epic, you know, kind of whatever quintessential, what is it? Surprising, uh, unexpected, but surprising. <laughs> Everything epic. wraps up in a yeah, nice little right. bow. conclusion. <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah, it was just, a, I just, in the end, it just felt like a really nice, sweet, small film. And I was okay with that. So you leave this writing class. You have a feature-length script. Um, how much longer does it take before you start making the movie? I shot the film in um, 2006 in the fall or in September. It was the the day we were remodeling our house. They had just cut the back of our house off. In no back of our house. And... I told my wife, I'm going to make the movie. <laughs> and uh, She's like, what? Yeah, it was, yeah. And how many kids did you have at this time? We had two kids, the same two kids I still have. Two uh, kids remodeling the house. Yeah, and making like, the movie. Hey, let's go make a movie. Why yeah. not? And, you know, about about to run out of money, I just didn't know it. And so it was, I don't know. I, like, I, I lost 15 pounds. Uh, 
shooting the film like it was amazingly stressful it was uh it was the i always say the highest highs and lowest lows and how old were you when you did this uh 2006 so what was i 30 let's see what was i why can't i add what year were you born <laughs> i was born 68 so that'd be 78 uh, 88, 88 98 i was like what 30 38 was i 38 i guess i was wow and then how many years was 2006 from the screenwriting course? Was it like four years, two years, a year? I think it was like five years, six okay. years. Okay. I, so it took the, yeah. It took you a while to get it going. Basically. It took me It took me a while. I didn't know what I was going to do with it. I just had it. And I was like, I don't even know if I was, I was busy. Advertising can, advertising is really great at kind of um, taking over your life. And so. <laughs> distracting you for what you really want to do. Yeah. And so <laughs> I, I was I was just busy and I, I would noodle on the script and tweak the script. And, um, I think, I think what happened for me is I was working on Saturn and they wanted to make some kind of sappy testimonials. Like every, every general motors car company will go through a phase as Chevy is right now, where they feel like ah, testimonials, that's it. That's what we need to do. So we were making these testimonials and we ended up using Ed Burns who made the brothers McMullen and a bunch of other movies, you know, super handsome. And he had a producer, Aaron Lubin, <laughs> and these guys were like making these testimonials, but mostly we were all just hanging out. Cause we were like, this is Ed Burns. This is great. You know, we're like in oh, LA with Ed Burns yeah. and Ed's telling stories from all of his movies. And, you know, Ed, you know, to his credit, like makes independent films. Like he has to go and raise the money. Like when we were doing things, We'd be sitting sitting in the hot tub at Shutters with Ed Burns and he'd have to get out and go down and have a meeting with someone uh, to get some money for the next project he was working on. But it was in talking with his producer, Aaron, as you always do on set, like, what do you do? What do you do in your spare time? And I'm like, well, I got this script. And he's like, oh, what is it? And I'm like, it's a little movie about a barber. And he's like, you should make it. And I'm like, eh, I don't know. And he's like, my girlfriend's making a movie in Montana for like 40 grand. And I'm like, 40 grand? He's like, yeah, he's making a feature for 40 grand. You should make a feature for 40 grand. And I was like, can you do that? <laughs> he's like, yeah. And I was That's like, funny. he's like, they got digital cameras now yeah. and all this shit. Like, I was what do like, you need? You need a, an actor, you need a barbershop, and you need a camera. That's basically what I got. And then I was so, so it was like the, the Pandora's box was opened and unlocked, and I was staring into this like, uh, mesmerizing possibility of making a film and uh it kind of you know i have to be making these very uninspiring testimonials uh which very unfulfilling creatively i've been sitting on the script and doing nothing with it and i've got a guy who's like made a sundance darling for twenty five thousand dollars who had been telling me you know, firsthand all the things he did to make it for $25,000. And and it was, you know. But this, but this is Ed Burns telling you this, right? Yes. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that's kind of the important component, right? <laughs> it's like he has uh, resources um, at his fingertips that he doesn't even realize are resources necessarily, you know. Or maybe he does, but it's like. That's just, it's it's funny. It, it just sounds so easy coming from someone like that. Although I'm sure he worked really hard and I'm sure he busts his butt to get his movies made. But, uh, you know, we all know who Ed Burns is and we all recognize him. So, I mean, yeah. that's like a huge 
resource right there. Well, when he when he made Brothers, he made it for twenty five grand. He made it over the course over a year, I think. He was a cameraman for Entertainment Weekly in New York, and depending on what gear he had access to and what time he had access to and his actors and stuff, he would he'd call up like his actress and he'd say, "Hey, let's go shoot that scene, uh, page forty three uh, today. The light's really good, or whatever it is. Uh, I got this camera." And he'd run out, you know, in Central Park and like, uh, you know, and do a walk and talk, which he'd say, you know, he's like, all you need is a bench. <laughs> I think the best thing was talking about all of his continuity errors because he was like, uh, you know, I, I shot, you know, whatever. I shot page 43 in May and I shot page 44 in August of the next year. And if you didn't <laughs> quite notice her hair's longer and a different color, uh, and there's all these things that, you know, he was just very, very, very improvisational in terms of getting it done. He said, I was like, I used every single room in my parents' house. Uh, I used the attic. I used the basement. I used every bedroom. I used the living room. I used the outside. I used the front. I used the back. And, uh, and it, it's sort of like you start to nod your head and go, I could do this. Yeah, well, it's in, it's been inspirational, right? You know? Yeah, it's super inspirational, yeah. especially a, coming from somebody who's like made it. Like they didn't just make a movie, but they're on the other side, and they're like, "Yeah, now I'm I'm still making movies, and people know my movies, and I've like won awards, I've played at Sundance, those kind yeah, of things." So you yeah. think, "Oh, it's this is a tangible thing." Were yeah. there other filmmakers you were talking to that were giving you the same advice, whether or not they were? as famous as as ed burns or just other local san francisco people uh i talked to i mean i i was i think a a little bit mostly i would talk to producers i was trying to find someone to help me kind of like physically put the production together but um aaron lubin who was ed's producer was kind of like this beautiful person who i could send an email uh with one one very specific question i would never try and overload them but you know i would say the way i approached the movie was i would get enough information to take a step forward and then i'd get stuck and i'd probably write aaron lubin an email and say here's where i'm at i need to get to here what do i do and in invariably i'd get a piece of advice and i'd uh figure out how to move forward and take the next step and i sort of just it was just one step at a time for, I don't know how long it took me to get it, you know, raising the money and all that stuff took, you know, that took, I'm sure that took a year. And what, how did you start with, okay, I have a script. I know now I want to make a movie for $40,000. Did you put together a budget and then say, here's my goal. If I raise a hundred thousand, I'm set or you know what was how did you yeah, figure so, out what so this is this is how i figured out my budget <laughs> this is a really high high-end math here uh i i got an llc and my lawyer said uh you can have 35 members of an llc and you can uh sell them shares and so i said to myself okay so every member needs a share so what is the most least amount of money I can ask a person for that I know. And I came up with a number of $2,500. <laughs> and so I multiplied 35 <laughs> members times, times $2,500. $2, yep. And then uh, that's that became the budget 
for the movie. That's hilarious. Which I'm like, it's more than 40. I should be golden. So uh, that's $87,500. Yeah, so maybe I was $5,000 because I... Uh, what was it? Well, it was... I, yeah, maybe I estimated it at $5,000. But most people gave me $2,500. Mm-hmm. But somehow I got to one seventy five in a very simplistic manner. And did you sell all your shares? I did. And, you know, again, I uh, I sold half of them. And then I had a friend who was my pledge brother, pledge, pledge brother from college. And someone said, you should write to Scott Gregson. He's he's doing pretty well in Vegas. And I was like, this guy, Scott, <laughs> Scotty G., was uh, selling. He had a. His I think his father had a, a commercial real estate firm in Las Vegas, and Scott went to work for him after college. And they were selling selling commercial real estate in Las Vegas during like the most explosive growth period. And so, anyway, Scott was kind enough to to basically come in and fund the second half of the movie, which blew me away uh, in terms of you know just generosity and the ease with which that happened compared to the like mountain climbing that was every single other person who kind of gave money to the film that's amazing man yeah and so can can i have that my scotty g appear now please (laughs) out of nowhere that would be great (laughs) yeah everybody needs a scotty g i gotta say like uh what did the uh, contract between each member of the llc look like did it say they were giving money and they'd get a certain percentage of the business. So then at the back end, when you made money back on the film, then it would get distributed evenly amongst all those people. Yeah. I mean, the whole idea, the, the, I think that I have to remember, but the, it was basic. Like I didn't set it up to make any money. I set it up to make a movie. And so the promise was if the movie made any money, that the money would go back to the investors until the investors were paid back. I want to say uh, uh, it was either 110% or 150%. I forget what it was. But like, if the movie had made any money, they would have made all the money off of it until it made a ton of money. And then right. I would have gotten some money back. But there was really... You know, <laughs> making movies is not a profitable right. endeavor. Unless you get lucky, basically. Yeah. Do you know the term scope creep? No. No. What's that? Scope creep. Scope creep is like uh, people use it in project management a lot. To when when a, a client asks for uh, a certain thing, <laughs> right. and then they're then they're like, "Where where are my banner ads?" And you're like, "Oh, well, we we were gonna make a commercial." And they're like, "Oh, we need banner ads." And then you make the banner ads, and you're like, "And the print ads?" And you're like, "No, no, it's just a video." And so it's called scope creep, and basically it's just that. <laughs> It grows. It's bigger uh, and bigger, bigger and bigger. Yeah. And so originally I was going to make a movie on Montana for $40,000 as Aaron Lubin described it to me. And then I managed to raise $175,000. And so I was like, well, what can we do with this? And then um, I got John Ratzenberger and I was like, well, this guy's like actually an actor people have heard of. Like, so maybe the movie should have slightly higher ambitions. And so it just sort of, it sort of grew. Uh, I think everybody hopes to get into Sundance. I learned. I learned. I don't. I think my my movie would have never made it into Sundance, even if I 
had the <laughs> proper ch- the proper channels even if but i understood was that the goal when you were going into it were you thinking man if i make a good enough film this will get into sundance and this could really kickstart my career uh i think my goal it i, I think i think it was more about getting it into a, a good when i was done with it it was the hope of getting it into a good festival but what did you uh, hope would happen after it got into a good festival like because you mentioned earlier in the podcast that you we're trying to get out of advertising with one of your side hustles. Were you, uh, was the hope that you'd get out of advertising and start directing features or you I just wanted to make a movie? I, I'll tell you the, the origin of the goal with them was like, I worked in advertising for so long and it's, it can, it's fun and it pays well. And, but ultimately all of your creative projects, the final say comes down to the guys that own the agency and the client and the world at large in terms of what you can put on TV. And so it felt what I wanted, the real reason I think I decided to make a film was like, I wanted a creative project, a big meaty creative project that I could ultimately own. So at the end of the day, I didn't have to show it to a creative director. I didn't have to get a client to approve it. What can I do if I don't have all these people looking over right, me? Right, right. Yeah, let's remove the net. Let's take away the kind of unlimited funding of advertising and just go, what can I do as a human being to make us to tell a story and uh, through my own eyes and, and put it out into the world and, and see what happens? And so I didn't have... You know, I, I think everybody who makes a film probably goes, oh, it'd be great if, you know, somebody picks it up and it explodes and becomes huge and people go, hey, do you want $10 million to make your next movie? But I didn't really have, I know I didn't have a plan because if I did have a plan, I would have had a second script, you know, <laughs> in the can, ready to go <laughs> right? And, and be like, this is what we're doing next, guys. Yeah. Well, it sounds to uh, me like you had very pure ambitions, which is like, I want to make something that I can be proud of that's like mine. And you didn't go into it with like the selfish desire to just like get out of advertising, become famous or whatever. Yeah, it wasn't that. It was just really a a pure creative project. Okay. Ulrich, where do we go from here? Like my instinct is just to jump right to the end of the process, but you probably have questions about the actual filmmaking part of it. Yeah, I was just thinking about that. Like, I don't want to dwell on the filmmaking so much. Um, You know, maybe just give us like a quick little rundown of your experience making the movie without like going into like extreme detail, maybe, if you can. Sure. We had $175,000. I thought we were going to shoot it in Reno, ultimately for for reasons that are we won't go into because it would be a long it'd be a podcast in and of itself we shoot (laughs) we end up shooting in napa which is close to where i live close to where my uh i guess my line producer lived and close to where the the grip and dp the the dp owned a little grip truck um cliff trayman he was a hard-working guy and uh oh yeah we both know cliff yeah cliff's uh, great yeah, and so he owned a little giant lighting and grip, and he had his crew, and we could pull a lot of um, Bay Area actors, and so for a lot of reasons, it made sense to shoot it in Napa and set it as Reno, and then we we would go and grab some some establishing shots and some interstitials and things in, in Reno. And so uh, we shot 19 days in Napa, mostly six days a week, a couple, one, I think, five-day week. Uh, we ran out of money about midway through, my line producer, I think, I guess the, the simplest way to say it is a lot of things that he had led us to believe were free 
he had actually agreed to pay for uh, people. 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 Oh people weren't giving us mohos uh, out of the kindness of their heart, or the favors that were getting hooked up weren't really there, and so it kind of got blindsided with like we're out of money and sorry, really sad. But if you want to keep going, you got to pay up, buddy. Well, it's like basically, I the analogy is like I, he got me to the middle of the swimming pool. My choice was to go back to the other side and have nothing, or find a way to get across. <laughs> yeah, and so it was a major Jeez. like one weekend was like uh, uh, two day, two down days were basically spent like scrambling to find fifty thousand dollars, and uh, which somehow managed to do through the mostly through the kindness of my mom. And what a little bit of Omnicom stock I had uh, <laughs> purchased over time for my retirement. And so we kept going and we got it done. And then we, you know, we did a year of post editing it, slow editing it, um, getting it scored. Um, and did it turn out the way you thought it would? Like when I'm asking this question, cause I've had this experience where the shoot in my head went great. But then when I sat in the editing room it wasn't coming together the way I thought it would. What was your experience editing the film, especially well, working on it for a year? Jeez. Well, luck- luckily, I didn't have any effects. <laughs> right. <laughs> that was my mistake. I had no effect shots. Uh, at a couple of places where I needed someone to like put a sign in, which um, Spy Post kindly did for free. But um, no, I, Cliff, I had a, you know, Cliff, Cliff Trayman bless his heart, took me aside on day one. And he's like, all right, I'm going to tell you this thing. I tell every like first time director, uh, get your coverage. Do not let anyone move you on until you have your coverage. So you've got your wide and your medium and your tight and you're going to need it. Uh, don't, you know, don't second guess it, just get it. And so we were pretty relentless about getting our coverage for the, um, for the entire length of the film. Um, here, I have a question about that. Yeah. So what did your coverage look like? Was it always that? Was it always wide, medium, close-up of each actor? Or did you do things where it was like, okay, I want this this steady cam shot to be the, sh- the, the wide. And so I'm not going to shoot a standard establishing wide because this, this, uh, this steady cam shot or whatever it is, it serves as my master. Did you do things like that, or did you just do standard? Yeah, if only we had a steady cam. Uh, oh, <laughs> <laughs> one not even one day. Come on, not even one day. Oh, uh, it was a wide. It was a wide. It was a wide, medium, and a tight. It was like the eighty-five, the fifty, and oh, uh, maybe one other lens. And okay. um, with the exception of one night, last night of shooting in Napa, uh, it was kind of a complicated scene. It was the most complicated scene. I'd shot from a blocking standpoint, and uh, John John's character comes home drunk, and he ends up in his neighbor's house, and there's like six neighbors in this living room, and the geography was kind of challenging, both from like where you could physically put the camera, and it was late, and we were running behind, and I, I always I had been getting my coverage like relentlessly. And we had a bunch of actors who were kind of green. It was probably the most pressure-packed night on set for me. And John was really carrying the scene. And we kind of shot this master. It was like a moving master. And I was like, this is going to be it. We're going we're gonna to punch in. We're going to grab these two pieces of 
cutaway coverage and that's going to be it because we just um and cliff was like you've got to get your coverage and i was like i'm never going to use it i'm not going to do it like i'm not going to put the crew through it uh because i know i know in my heart of hearts the way we're going to cut this is going to be like this and so that was that was the night i felt like i sort of earned my directing 101 merit badge yeah but did it work out when you got to it worked out it worked out yeah because yeah it is true it's like you can play it so safe and so careful and make sure you get all that coverage so that way when you get in the edit room that you're covered but sometimes you just have to like just bite the bullet and say this is what i want let's spend the time to get this right and not the extra time to get all the coverage to cover my ass yeah so yeah those are both sides of the coverage coin but in the edit in the edit it worked out well i love my editor ian montgomery the guy was uh patient and talented and um put the whole thing together and we just kind of did it bit by bit and um you know there was one i want to say in the course of the film there was one scene that didn't make the cut like we we were really lean and very efficient and in the end like we used almost every shot that we had uh with the exception of one thing that just kind of didn't play and we didn't need it but everything else sort of made made the movie like we you know it was literally like maybe a 95 page script when we went in to shoot it and as we were running out of time and running out of money i was editing and rewriting on the fly and you know so it's kind of a straight up 90 minute movie and we needed everything that we had and thankfully it all kind of uh stitched together and how did you feel at the end of the process you you went out to go make something that you didn't have creative directors looking over your shoulder were you proud yeah, I was proud of it. You know, like I, uh, like any creative project, you'd probably do things differently somewhere, somehow, some way. But I, I was definitely proud. And, you know, for a little movie, it, it did, it did, I don't know exactly how to rank it. it you know, it, it wasn't a Sundance movie, but it, mm-hmm. it, it got into Cinequest, uh, which I think is a really good festival. And I love Cinequest. It, uh, it won, uh, it co-won best feature there and then it the film meant a bunch of people really nice people got like elliot kotek and um mike rabel who uh runs cinequest and they introduced the movie to a bunch of other festivals and i didn't realize at the time but like that's sort of how movies grow is they get passed on from one festival director will ask another festival director like did you see anything you really liked you know that should we have here and so that happened for the movie and it was, you know, got kind of shuttled around to another, I don't know, eight to 10 festivals. And, you know, then it got some, you know, small distribution offers, which were mostly, you know, mostly for like, when we make some money, you'll make some money, you know, kind of like the classic distribution deal, the classic. uh, Yeah. (laughs) And where did you get those distribution deals? Like when it first played was a Cinequest your first festival? Cinequest was the first festival, and um, they they came kind of pretty close together. I had a guy who was uh, Peter. I can't remember his last name, but he was a guy who was he was kind of helping gratis for free, and he was kind of weighing in. And then he was like, "Well, maybe if you paid me, we could kind of we could maybe 
work harder to get the film a better distribution deal and yada yada and i was like i was just i was out of money at that point like, no just, more money no more money um so there was one i had gotten one distribution deal it was like a little bit of money up front but like it was a really small label and then the people who ultimately distributed it were monterey media who kind of made their bones distributing grateful dead videos and and i looked at their their roster of films and they had like they had like small you know small indie films i don't think anything really well known but they all felt like they were movies whose heart was in the right place and so what they offered was that they would try and put it in the film in a handful of small theaters and everybody always wants to see their movie at a theater and get a, a, a small like limited theatrical release but this was like this was really limited uh <laughs> i think it was maybe five cities for a weekend played up in auburn uh i played in chicago i flew oh, up to awesome. chicago and uh there's a little independent theater there i got a picture of myself with the movie up on the um marquee and oh that's awesome uh so i took it but it was more of um you know they ended up on showtime and viacom and stars and Netflix and all your standard standards standard places. And so, and then what what company distributed distributed it it's again? It's called Monterey Media. Monterey Media, okay. Even though they're called Monterey Media, they're located out of like uh somewhere in the valley down in LA. Mm. And then um did you get any money up front from that deal? You said no, right? No, no money up front. I didn't expect to make any money off the deal and it, you know, it it was you know, you get the statement and it'll say like foam core, $600, like, you know, all of their costs. Basically, anybody anybody who distributes a film structures a deal in such a way that they go, I know this film's worth X number of dollars to me. So I'm I the deal is structured in a way that for the filmmaker, uh, you're only going to make money if the movie explodes. Because basically they know that this movie they can package and sell for X number of dollars. So the contract's structured in a way that... Uh, they're going to recoup the 100 or 90 or 95% of that that dollar amount and then once that threshold is crossed then you you supposedly get a you know you get the 90% but you never cross that threshold you know what i mean right Unless they they right, structure right. It in a way that they're going to make money and recoup their costs but unless the film gets huge you'll never be able to make your money back even though your budget's very small for an indie film yeah, that's kind of the yeah. deal. But I remember you telling me that you because you use SAG actors and you also had um, the Directors Guild involved that you owed money after the distribution of it. Were you able to get enough money <laughs> from the distributor to like cover those costs at least? Yeah, I feel like uh, yeah, it's hard. making movies is hard. <laughs> um, I, I yeah, I feel like um, it was weird. I would. I, you know, people tell these stories these days where like you'll you'll be talking to your friend about something, a product, and then you'll be on your Instagram feed and like that product will be in your feed. <laughs> yeah. So it's so it was like that was what it was like was like uh, the distributors like, hey, um, here's your check, your first check. And I was like, wow, a check. I got a check. You know, it's like for a couple grand. And then like literally the next day I get a note from sag you need to pay residuals on the sale of your movie and you're like <laughs> and the residuals amount is like 
almost exactly the amount of money you just got from the distributor. Amazing. So it was basically like taking the check, putting it in the bank, turning around and writing a check for the same amount and sending it to SAG. Uh, and, you know, just again, like I didn't know. I didn't. I was like, well, wait, they bought the movie. Aren't aren't don't they pay the you would think? Yeah, like, you would think that the distributor should be responsible right. for paying the SAG residuals. Right. Not you. Right, because they're the ones who sold the movie to whoever is actually putting it on TV or wherever. Yeah. And so, so yeah, but no. <laughs> like, no, you're the producer. And I'm like, oh, okay, now I know what producers do. Right. <laughs> That's why some so, people say don't do a SAG ultra low budget um, you know, contract and do like a new media one or something else. But I don't know. I feel like there's a lots of reasons why the new media thing with SAG is not a good idea. Um, you know, I don't even know if the new media was an option. Pro- I... Probably not. It's pretty new. I think it only came yeah. out like in post 2010, I think, you know, like it wasn't, I don't think it existed before then or even later than that, you know? Yeah. And it's hard to like, I, I mean, maybe it isn't for some people, but for me, it was like, like the business, I wasn't, I just wasn't good at the business side of it. And I don't feel like, I feel like while my line producer helped me get the movie made, like there was not like, there wasn't enough rigor. Someone going, okay, you have 175 grand. You just peel off 35 grand and set that aside for A, B, C, D, (laughs) and E, right? right? You know, it was like all the money was spent getting the movie into the can Mm -hmm. and more, you know, and then it was big borrow and stealing the post. Yeah, that's pretty typical, though. You know, I feel like that happens a lot where, you know, you raise enough money uh, that you think for the whole thing, but then production sucks all that up, and then you have to figure out how to raise more money for post, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, it's good if you could avoid doing that, mm-hmm. if possible. <laughs> yeah. And so 10 years later, are you still seeing checks come in for from your distribution company? Uh, I think maybe a few years ago I got a, I got a check maybe like I, um, like we just sold your movie to the Ukraine. No, I mean, one of the things I've been wondering is like, is I forgot how long the initial term of distribution is. I feel like there's an industry standard for how long. Oh, right. So I don't know if it's, the rights could revert back to you soon. It's possible. Um, but I don't know. And what, I, you know like I, if they do, are you going to close your LLC and just be like, I'm done? I think I would be done. Like, I had so much, you know, anxiety. I mean, because I have a, I feel like I, I'm a pretty straight up honest person. And so I've, like, tried to make good on, like, all of my... Um, my line producer promised people lots of things that, like, that ultimately fell on me. You know, like you know that I didn't know these deals were in place and I, I, I worked my ass off to like cover all of the surprise bills, you know, like, Oh, that location wasn't free. That wasn't my cousin's location. It was actually this guy and we own $1,500 or whatever. Like I had sold my car at the end of the film, uh, to pay cliff. And so it was just a series of those things. It was like, Oh, here's a little money from the distribution company. Oh, you got to pay sag. Oh, here's a little money you know, oh, you've got to pay the state of California or you've got to pay. And so it just sort of, it got to the point where it was like, um, it was just, it, I, I, you just at some point you had to go, okay, I, I just can't, 
I can't, can't do it anymore. I can't do it anymore. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so when did did you close out your LLC? I'm just curious. I haven't closed it out. I oh, keep really? it. I just keep it open for oh, some unknown funny. reason. So I just had an investor meeting earlier this week for my movie, and my producer explained all this back end stuff to the potential investor. And one of the things he said is like, "Okay, so." Here's how you do it. So, you know, you make the movie, blah, blah, blah. You get your money in from your old, your first deals that happen in the first two to three years, if that, but usually at the first couple years. And then around the three-year mark, um, you, you see less and less money coming in. Right. So then you close your LLC out at that time because the cost of keeping the LLC open is like $1,800 a year, basically. Eight hundred, yeah. It's well, oh, for, yeah, yeah. I guess he was saying there's some other fees, like for K ones and stuff like that, or whatever right. they are. But anyways, he was like saying basically at that point, close your LLC out, and then just have all the checks come directly to the the filmmaker, you know, to to you basically or me, and then that person distributes them out to the investors, you know, right. as they come in, because that way you're not paying that 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 money toward the LLC every year. And because, like you know, in in the later years, it's probably you're gonna make like a thousand dollars a year if you're lucky, or maybe less, or or a little bit more. But but what if somebody comes after you, in. like with the lawsuit? Doesn't that like leave you open to? But after them... three years, or you know, or whatever, like you, all the lawsuits probably would have already happened <laughs> if there's gonna be lawsuits. <laughs> I don't know. know. I'm so I'm so gun shy and so paranoid. I guess I just I just keep it open. Like yeah. I, legal protection. If I yeah. ever get a. If I get a few hundred dollars from the distrib- distribution company, and I just it goes to paying the the eight hundred dollars right. fee to keep the, <laughs> the LLC open. Right. I don't know, man. Yeah. I mean, I'm not. I'm not a master at this stuff. I'm just regurgitating what my producer said earlier, yeah. and he's made yeah. like eighteen movies. Uh, so I imagine that that's a process that works for him. I'm sure he knows yeah. better than I do. <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, so I had a question. So when did the movie actually come out and like was available to rent and available to be seen, um, out in the world? So shot in 2006, post in 2007, Cinequest 2008, sold and distributed. I think the official release year is 2009. And wow, uh, I think you can still find it out there. Yeah, on iTunes and Amazon nice. Prime. I think I don't nice. know. So I guess this is the big question that I think Timothy's been wanting to ask the whole time. I don't know if I if you want me to ask it, Timothy, or if I yeah, can. please, because there's like a garbage truck outside my house okay. right now. Okay. So it's been almost ten years since the movie's been released. Over ten years since you shot it. Why haven't you made another film yet? Uh, I mean that's a that's like a deep, deeply introspective question. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> like I, on the part of it is I feel like I got everything I wanted to get out of making a movie out of that movie. It was like film school and life school, and uh, I learned so much. But I, I, I mean, which isn't to say I wouldn't love to make another movie. I just. Uh, haven't felt like I've been in a position where I could go and make a movie in a way that wouldn't be a repeat of that process, which I see. have no, I don't want to do that again. Uh, it was just huge, <laughs> huge, so stressful. I mean, it was, Yeah. Uh, I mean, and like, I think it's something you can do when you're in your twenties, but you know, when you're in your thirties and now, like I'm now in my forties, I've got 
I've got two kids, I've got college, I've got a mortgage, I've got, uh, I've got all these things. And so I'm like, in the back of my head, I'm always like, mm, how could I make another film? Like I'm still working on scripts. I have a, a new writing partner I'm working with on another project I think could be cool. But, and of course I have the endless side hustles, let's be honest. But, uh, it'll happen at some point. I don't know, but it, it's just gonna, it's gonna have to happen in a way that, um, isn't as naive and romantic as my original. <laughs> right. You know better first. now. I know better. Yeah. Well, it sounds but. to me like you wanted to have the experience of it and you've had the experience and I feel this way too, where there's like kind of like the ceiling that I'm at where like, yeah, I could just do the same thing again, but I kind of want to break through the ceiling and do something bigger and better. Right. But how do you get there without having kind of had that first success? So it's almost like you just have to kind of repeat the same thing over and over again until you have the big enough success to like kind of catapult you through the ceiling to the next opportunity is kind of where I see it. And so for me, um, not wanting to pursue another film at this moment in my life is because I know I had the naive part of me is gone, having done Spirit Machine, which is not a feature, but it was felt like that definitely the process of it felt like that um i know that i'd have to kind of grind it out a little bit to kind of keep going and like groundhog's day like kind of do the same thing again and i don't know if i have enough faith in myself to like actually pull it off and 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 break through that ceiling like i feel like i might just keep disappointing myself over (laughs) and over and over again and i just can't live my life that way yeah and i think i mean i think you know like we were just talking about um the guy we both know, Mike Schwartz, who's making this film, The Peanut Butter Falcon. But you sort of have to be, you sort of have to, in my estimation, like, if you're going to break through, you have to put yourself in a position where that's all you're doing. Um, it's really hard to kind of break through on the side. And so you have to... <laughs> right, uh, right, right. You really have to kind of go... Uh, my job's not going to come first. My family's not going to come first. My mortgage isn't going to come first. Like I'm not going to worry about what car I own or, uh, you know, if I need a new appliance or medical insurance or whatever it is, you kind of just have to be all about, all about the project. And I think, you know, I think that's where I go. God, if I'd only gone to film school and only made the connections in the film world that I've made in advertising, what would my, creative career look like (laughs) right i don't know well i think it but i think even with those connections even with those other things it's the same deal you know like i think everybody who um you know even people who have like yeah like a friend who's an actor or you know know the right producer or whatever they all hustle like they all have to put that same kind of energy and stress and and everything into their movie you know um either way basically. Yeah. So I think that, that what you're talking about, like that determination and dedication doesn't change. Um, I don't think, at least I have to believe that it doesn't because if I thought that people had it so easy, I mean, I don't know. I think, <laughs> oh, I don't, I don't, but I don't I think it is. Yeah. I don't think it's it is. It's never easy. Even for, yeah. yeah even for, uh, what's his burns. No, I guess. What's I guess, it burns? Ed, Ed, Bur- Ed, Bur- Ed burns. Ed. What's it burns? That's his, his name. name. <laughs> Mr. Burns. Mr. Burns. Um, now, I know you weren't saying that, but I mean, it just that's what goes into my head, you know, when I think about connections and, oh, if I had gone yeah. to USC, because I went to, a, you know, a local, you know, 
State College. Right. I always think, oh, if I got into USC or Chapman or right. whatever, could I be Ryan Coogler right now? You know? Right. <laughs> it's just like, or yeah. had we moved to LA when we were in our right. 20s, would we be in a different place? Exactly. Than we are now? So it's all those what if things that can like really right. get to you. Yeah. And I don't think you necessarily have to do that. I just, I guess, I guess what I was trying to say was, I had so many people do such great things for me and my little film through my relationships in advertising that like if I had developed those advertise those relationships in the film world I just it just makes me always kind of wonder like what could you have done right with all the hustle and drive and motivation that I had to make a film with just kind of advertising connections as my foundation you know if you're if you had a two feet planted in the film world what could you do but you know that's just more of a existential life question <laughs> yeah, right I know what exactly. you're saying, though. and a practical question but, yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, well, the, the other thing I wanted to ask was, like, through all the stress and through all the process, like, did you enjoy it? Did you did you have a good time making it? And at the end of the, the process, were you like, this this movie is what I envision it to be? Uh, to I definitely enjoyed it. There was, like, a lot of moments where you just felt like an actor did something really great and you were so proud of them. And, you know, it's like a third child you know, a movie is in a way it's like you, you know, but just to kind of follow on with that analogy, it's like, just like your child ultimately grows into whatever he or she is going to be. The movie was less a fastidious manifestation of my vision and more like the organic growth of a child. Like it's sort of, you know, every choice you make is like, a characteristic, you know, and so casting decisions and location decisions and money realities and all that stuff. And, and like someone said to me, it's like, at some point, uh, you're just making the movie you can make. You're not making the movie that, uh, you necessarily have in your head. Right. Right. Uh, yeah. But in the end, I was super proud and super grateful and super thankful just to to have made it and to have had the experience of making it and to have worked with everyone and to, uh, and to do it and to learn and to grow as a creative person. And so even though it's not like, you know, if I could manifest the mental vision of the movie into the world, it would look different probably than the movie itself ultimately looked. I was still, still totally happy with how it actually turned out. That's awesome. I love that you kind of like let gave control over to the universe to let it just be its own thing. Right. I know, and it's like it's like a very anti-advertising thing because oh my god, so advertising opposite. is such the opposite <laughs> thing, and um, and I think that's why I didn't feel like I could ever really be a commercial director. I felt like I don't have enough of a directorial style. I don't think anyone's like looking for the next great organic narrative commercial filmmaker <laughs> maybe you know? they are and they just don't know yeah. it yet yeah so and let's be honest you have a pretty good life yeah it's, you know like I, yeah like i i tell people who are always talking about getting out of advertising i'm like i had i came back from the movie with a newfound respect for advertising because it it did pay well and it was creative and it was well funded and it was well produced and i the agency i work for was full of great talented amazing people like i've 
you know, as a freelance person, I've been um, to many different agencies and many different clients and many different businesses. And uh, I still feel like the, the, the Goodby Silverstein place is, is just the best place I've ever been in terms of uh, creativity and people. And uh, I know, <laughs> you know, it's like you get it, you see what it's like on the other side. Yeah. Uh, and it's just kind of like, I was like, I should quit knocking advertising so hard and just, uh, <laughs> <laughs> just be thankful. Uh, it is like as creative and, people, it's really hard to find a way to like sustain yourself and make money and like to have something like advertising out there in the world is an amazing thing. Um, but it's uh, at the same time, it is easy to hate it because you're, you feel like because it pays so well and because it's so much fun, you're like, ah, oh, but it's also keeping me from doing all the things that I, you know, I, I'd love to just be like on my own making my movies and doing my thing. Right. But how many people actually get to like write books and make movies and paint paintings and, and make that their, their career without having a trust fund? Not many. Yes. So it's, it's, yeah. I like advertising because all the people that do want to do that <laughs> stuff tend to like end up there and then they have these little side hustles that they do and then they're kind of pursuing their passion on the side. But yeah, someone always said like directing movies is a rich man's game and uh, <laughs> yeah, rich you, man's hobby. You, yeah, rich man's hobby. You look, <laughs> but you're like, you're always like, uh, you're like, who's that? Uh, where'd that director grow up? I'm like, Oh, his dad was like a, a robber baron. And, um, he had three kids that worked for him in the company. And then there was, he was the one black sheep creative guy and he's a director now. It's like every, I feel like every, every wealthy, uh, American family that, you know, like owns something huge has a, a black sheep creative kid who's a yeah. film director. Yeah, yeah. right. Take, taking a little bit from the family fortune to go make movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so you said in your answer about why you haven't made another film that, you know, it may happen again, but you're not like, it's just not the top of your pri list of priorities. Um, is that is that pretty accurate? I mean, I have, a, I have a cork wall in my room which has a script up on it in nice. note cards. And, oh, uh, there you go photos and um so it's 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 there it's there it's there like i i'm always like i would love to you know i i think i tell people like if i made another movie i would sell a script to someone in la who uh, could get it made or i would come up with an idea which i haven't yet of how to shoot uh a feature with two actors on my phone oh wow so, so the script that you're working on that's on your wall, that's something that you're hoping to sell to somebody? Yeah, it's... Um, okay. This is a San three, Quentin story? That's not on the wall anymore. Oh, that's still that's on. still Awesome. Yeah, I'm working... It, it's um, uh, Three Homeless People Find $5 Million is the basic... Wow, there you go. <laughs> but you don't, have, you don't have aspirations to direct it yourself, necessarily? I don't know if my writing partner wanted to direct it. I would direct it with him. Oh, okay, uh, co-direct. But yeah. uh or I would just let someone else direct it. I don't know. I would uh I guess what I would say is I would do whatever I would probably look at it through the lens of how could this get me closer to making or directing another film. Right, right, right. Well, then I so, probably would say selling is not the right way to go because I think that takes you in a different direction than being a director or, you know, working in that creative 
form, you know, because if you yeah. if you man if you do manage to sell a script, which I understand is very difficult, uh, then you're more in the writer box, you know. Um, but you'd also be box. in the um, WGA box and the uh, and the having an agent box, which might get yeah. you into the like, yeah, slight getting a meeting box. Right. I I am so disillusioned <laughs> with the whole getting a meeting agent manager route because yeah. we've talked to so many people who are doing that and who have done that. And, you know, they, they seem to be stuck in that pattern. I mean, not all of them, obviously, but I don't know. I think it works out for a lot of people, but here I'll save everyone a lot of time and I'm going to pretend like I'm an, I'm your agent. Okay. Um, go write a spec pilot for a TV series. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm just saying that it seems like the people who have more success are the ones who just do it, you know, who are who are making a movie and just keep on doing it. And eventually they find some some, you know, a version of success. And I feel like just making your movie is, is success enough, you know. And yeah, you did it, it. It's Chris. Out in the world, you know, I did it. It was fun. It was definitely fun. And I would um, happily do it again with someone else's money or. <laughs> Much less of, of, right. of my money. Yeah. Right. Uh, but yeah, it's, you know, it's, uh, it's tough to beat in terms of, um, of, uh, creative fulfillment. It's just so challenging financially. Right. right. Uh, yeah, there's been a lot of talk on this podcast late, lately about quitting because um, Timothy has denounced being a director temporarily, in my opinion. Um, but, <laughs> but but I feel like, awesome. you know, just talking to you, Chris, like, you know, you're still in the game. To me, you're still doing it. Like the fact that you have, you know, you've been working on multiple scripts. You've got a cork, you know, cork board with all the notes on the wall that you're 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 still pushing after it. Who cares that you haven't made a movie in 10 years? It doesn't matter. You're still a filmmaker in my eyes, you know, because you're still you're still hustling after the dream, you know, whatever way it is, because I think the, the key that I think keeps on happening with everybody and with ourselves is we're all thinking it's like this race, like, oh, we have to make our first movie by this certain age and we have to be having an agent by this certain age and we have to like, right. you know, one win Sundance by this certain age. And I think like that's fucking bullshit. Like. You know, like you can be making a movies, movies for your whole life. Like, you know, look at Clint Eastwood. Look at all these other people who are still doing it. Like if you direct your first movie when you're 60, like you're not any lesser than a, than a, a young kid making their first movie when they're 20. You know, it's just a different path. So I don't I think know. that's uh, I think that's good advice. I would say embrace your own path because the, yeah. the, the path that uh, the world lays out for you is there's limited space on that path. And. At a certain point, you're just better off pursuing your own path. And um, I still feel like at some point, somewhere, I'll make another movie. I've thought about like, man, it would be fun to make a documentary because I love like history and I love like when someone goes deep on a subject, there's a lot of podcasts that I like listen to and go, God, this would make a great documentary. And like the way I, the way I organize and outline and I think would, uh, allow me to be relatively decent, make a decent documentary. Uh, my goal is to just stay in it enough that somewhere, some way, someday, another opportunity will come along and we'll be making something again. 
Nice. So yeah, it, awesome. it, it will happen. You know, if you stay at it, eventually it'll happen. Well, you Ulrich, know? if you're um, going to say that Chris is still in the game, then I'm definitely in the game. Yeah, you're you're fooling yourself for thinking that you've quit <laughs> being a director. I think it's it's a complete I guess facade. It's not quit being a director. <laughs> I'm quit pushing energy towards making you're, a you're, career you're, out of it. I'm I'm no, more in like Chris, where it's like I'm working on stuff. I would love the opportunity. <laughs> I don't have the idea yet that I'm going to go full force into, but yeah, I'm not going to I'm not going to do a lot of the things that I think that probably are expected of somebody who is a quote-unquote filmmaker. I think you're re- right. you're just refocusing. Like you're basically rather than focusing on trying to get into production, you're just focusing on story. Yeah. And That's I think focusing on story for 2 to 3 years is no problem. Well, it might be know? 10 years, who knows. Or 10 yeah. years, whatever. It doesn't matter. That's what I'm that's my point is that Dude, I, yeah. you know. Yeah. And I think we get in our heads about all these like goals and like timelines and things and it's like get out nah, get out of there, you know? Like yeah. we're just we're just doing our art, we're doing our craft however we need to. You know? I'm definitely not pressing. Like I felt like, <laughs> right. you know, like that's, I'm not pressing, but I do, I do for whatever reason, working on a script is sort of like something I do with 10% of my time. Mm-hmm. And it's a very, to me, it's a well-spent 10% because yeah. it, um, I don't know. It just, it scratches an itch or gives me satisfaction in a, in a way that there's really very little, uh, very little else can do you know like i thought oh maybe i would try and write a a novel or like i don't know i just i just it makes me uh feel like a creative person like i you know like i have one script and i'm like i should just timothy knows the san quentin thing but like i could just make this into a graphic novel or whatever but like i just keep looking at it through the lens of uh trying different hats on and seeing what feels like it gives you enough energy to do the work. Yeah, totally. Um, well, that's, I think that's beautiful, man. That, that to me, that's like a great example of just like, a, you know, another way to, to achieve the, or follow the path of, of being a filmmaker and follow the art and follow your craft. You know, if it's 10% of your time, 5% of your time, 20% of your time, I think, I don't know, man. That's that's what I that's I think what we've been getting at this whole time with this podcast is that you know filmmaking takes many different forms, and as long as you're just doing it, you know, then you're you're in the you're in the group, you're in the clan, you know, you're in the clan. Yeah. Um, I have to run. You have any last questions, Timothy? No. This is a great place to wrap it up. Awesome. Well, Chris, thank you so much for being on the podcast, man. Yeah, and sharing your great. story. Sure. Thanks for having me. Yeah. It's- it's nice to talk about it. Nice, man. I know it's that empowering. some people, you know, in your position would not feel comfortable talking about it because of various reasons, but I really appreciate that you're willing to and I think it's your your perspective on the whole whole thing, filmmaking in general, I think is really wonderful. Mm-hmm. So, thanks for sharing. Um is there a place where people can see your movie, see your work, see the other stuff that you do? Do you have a website or anything? Uh chrisford.tv for um all of my advertising related gags. And then uh, I think the village barbershop is still every so often I search. I think it's still possible to find on Amazon prime and or iTunes. Nice. Um, Do you have Twitter, Facebook, any social media? uh, Mr. C Ford on Twitter and Instagram. Nice. Do you want to plug your podcast? 
Oh, you have a podcast. Oh, right. <laughs> we do. We have a podcast that um, is, we're slow, slow, slowly, <laughs> organically growing. Uh, my creative partner, David Carter, and I do. It's called The Troublemakers, and that's on um, iTunes as well as uh, the Google Plays. Nice. Uh, it's about, um, it's kind of centered around uh, creativity and empowering people to kind of find their own uh, creative creativity and create a path so nice man awesome i'll check good. it out yeah how many episodes do you have i think we have four okay yeah nice. and we're gonna make more we're just we're busy it's another 10 nice. percent yeah. side hustle <laughs> another 10 yeah. percent side hustle yeah. <laughs> um is there a website where people can check out all the other things that you talked to us about like your like crazy jeep projects or whatever other schemes you've got going on uh you could one of the things we're doing is uh trying to empower short form content creators uh with a little side project we're also working on but uh right now it exists as an instagram feed uh called let's bazooka and you can check that out if anyone's really (laughs) bored nice and uh i think that's i think that's it the jeep thing has been tabled we sold our jeeps and we moved uh we had to jettison <laughs> some side hustles and focus. Oh, uh, yeah. So, well, send us the link to the crowdfunding campaign if it's still out there. I would love to check out this Jeep thing and uh, share it with everybody because it sounds very interesting. Awesome. Uh, All right. Cool. Well, thanks, everybody, for listening. And thanks again for a wonderful episode, uh, Chris and Timothy. This has been great. Um, if you want to get in contact with us, you can send us an email to podcast at mickeymoviesishard.com or you can find us on Twitter and Facebook at MMIH Podcasts. You can also visit our website at mickeymoviesishard.com where you can find links to the things we talked about on this episode. And while you're there, please sign up to receive a weekly email from us and you'll deliver the show notes right to your inbox every Monday morning around 6 a.m. And finally, if you like the show, tell your friends about it or leave a rating for the podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. And thanks again, guys. Thank you, and talk to you all next week.